Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob. And here, James Jordan is going to be discussing the end of Genesis chapter 43 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 44, where Joseph receives and tests his brothers. Along the way, he has a really fun discussion about bread, wine, and tears. We do invite you to check out our recent psalm chant videos. They are all listed there in the show notes for you, and we hope that you enjoy and are encouraged to sing them with us. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Genesis and Joseph testing his brothers. We're in Genesis chapter 43. And we're at verse 27. The brothers have come back to Egypt a second time. And they brought a double restitution of the silver that they wound up by accident taking home the first time. And also more silver for more grain. And they brought Benjamin with them because they have no choice. And Joseph encounters them and... That's basically where we are in the story. Joseph sees Benjamin. He says that they will have a meal together at noon. And then last time we saw that the architecture and liturgy in this passage, which is a subtext, but is very important, and we wanted to expose that because Joseph is a type of Christ. And what Joseph does as an image of God, being a human being, follows out what God himself does. And Joseph's house, like the house of Ahasuerus in Esther, is just like the temple or the tabernacle, because that's what houses are like anyway. Your house is like that. You have a porch and a doorway that comes into it, and you have public areas, and you have private areas. People come into your house, you invite them in, they sit in the living room, then you invite them into the dining room, but you don't ordinarily invite them back into your bedroom. That's the way our houses are built, and that's the reality of human life. If you are a human being made in the image of God, your house looks like that. It has a doorway that leads into it from the outside, and it has another section on the inside that is more concealed than the semi-public area. Well, Joseph's house is like that. And the brothers are out here on the porch. They're told to come on in and have this meal, but they're reluctant to go inside. They're frightened that they had been brought into Joseph's house, but we see that they hadn't quite yet been because verse 19, they came close to the man of the steward of Joseph's house and spoke to him at the entrance or doorway of the house. And they want to get all this cleared off, first of all. And explain that they didn't mean to take the silver back home. They don't know how it got there. But they brought double back just to make sure that everybody's happy, and they brought these gifts. And the steward says, it's okay. Your God is in charge of everything, which might be a surprise to them after all. They go down to this pagan country and find that all these people believe in God. How'd that happen? They keep claiming to be God-fearers. Out here on the porch, there is a certain amount of confession And then they wash their feet and they come in. They come into the area where the meal is going to be served. And that's where we are right now as they come in. So in verse 27, I'll read from here to the end of the chapter and then we'll 
look at in a bit more detail. He, that is Joseph, reading from Fox Translation again, he asked after their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And in homage they bowed low. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God show you favor, my son. And in haste, for his feelings were so kindled toward his brother that he had to weep, Yosef entered a chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself, and he said, Serve bread. And they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with them by themselves. For Egyptians will not eat bread with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to Egypt. And they were seated in his presence, the firstborn according to his rank as firstborn, and the youngest according to his rank as youngest. And the men stared at one another in astonishment over it. And he had courses taken to them from his presence, and Benjamin's course was five times greater than all their courses. And they drank and became drunk with him. So let's look at it. Verses 27 and 28. When they come in, he asked about their father. Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answer, they say, he's well and he's alive. Again, we can read this through as if it were a novella. And say, yes, of course, Joseph is interested in Jacob. He asked about him. He probably asked other things too. I would imagine he probably asked about the mothers. I would think Joseph would want to know about Rachel. When he left home, she was still alive, as we know from the chronology. So other things were probably said. We always have to ask, what is the theological reason? Or in terms of the theme of the text, why... Is attention called to this? Why does he ask about Jacob? He's obviously curious. He's concerned. But what else? And I think the reason is that in terms of the whole theme of this story, the estrangement of all these people from each other is the theme. Jacob is estranged from his sons. The sons are at odds with each other. The sons have sold Joseph into slavery. As we'll see in just a moment, Egyptians and Israelites don't eat together. All of these estrangements, all of these middle walls of partition, which is what you have here with the brothers and the Egyptians, and all of these other estrangements are what Joseph is reconciling. So the author of the text, whoever wrote this, maybe Joseph himself wrote it, is wanting to alert us to the relationship with the father once again as we move into this. So family relationships keep being brought up. Then in verse 29, we follow this theme out, and it sets us up for more things. He lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. Well, folks, we know that Benjamin is his brother and his mother's son. Why are we told this? Well, again, if we want to psychologize it, Joseph says, Ah, he does look like me. By George, I did have a younger brother after I was sold into slavery. Those guys were right. But it's not for that reason. As I say, we know, I mean, that probably went through his head, but we know this. But it's a particular reason why this language is used. Because Benjamin is going to be used as a proxy for Joseph. 
Benjamin is going to be treated just like Joseph was, and the brothers are going to be put to a test. Will they become jealous of Benjamin? Will they put Benjamin to death? Will they leave him to rot the same way they left Joseph to rot? And so the fact that Benjamin is his brother, he's just like him. He's his mother's son. He's the son of the first wife, the favored wife. We want to be reminded of this because that's part of the theme. It's setting us up for the test that follows. And we have to have this particular data in mind as we move into the test. And similarly, Joseph says here in this verse, May God show you favor, my son. Well, of course, Jacob had given God special blessings to Joseph, given him the special garment, honored him in a special way. And now here Joseph, the Egyptian man, who had treated the other brothers in a completely different way, now he's nice to Benjamin. Think of the contrast. Remember when the other brothers came? First thing Joseph says to them, you are spies. What are you doing here? You're here to spy out the land. How? The brothers are thinking, wait a minute, the Ammonites were just in here, and they came out and said, no, the guy was pretty friendly, he sold us grain. And the Ishmaelites were just in here yesterday, and they told us that the guy was pretty friendly and sold them grain. Now we come in here, and the first thing he says is, you're spies. And he attacks them, and he throws them in prison. They're wondering about this. Now they show up with Benjamin, and it's totally different. It's, ah, that's favor, Benjamin. May God, Elohim, your God. May he show you favor, my son. My son. You're taking him right in. Totally different treatment from the other brothers. See, he's setting it up. He knows what he's doing. He's setting it up. The other brothers, who he so roughly treated before, of course, he's going to be nice to them too now, but he's given special niceness to Benjamin to see what they'll do. And then in verse 30, And in haste, for his feelings were so kindled toward his brother that he had to weep, he entered a chamber and wept there, and then he washed his face and came out, restrained himself, and said, Serve bread. Now this is where I wanted us to at least see the architecture a bit. Joseph goes back into an inner chamber, and then he washes his face to come back in. I notice that we wash our feet to come in from the outside. We wash your face to come in from the inside. If you look at the tabernacle, you've got a blue veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, which is where the table of showbread is. And you've also got a blue veil leading from the outer court into the dining room, the Holy Place where the table of showbread is. Washing face is from above, washing feet is from below. And they mean different things. Joseph washes his face to pull himself down psychologically to where he can meet with his brothers. The brothers have to wash their feet because... They were spies, and they have to wash that away to come in. Anybody remember why washing the feet has to do with being a spy? I have to remember from last week, and I know that seven days is a long time. The word for spy is the word foot. And they were spies, of course. They were guys who spied Joseph from afar, and then when he drew near, they tried to kill him. They tried to sell him off into slavery. So they are, by essence, spies. And he's right to accuse them of being spies. And they have to wash their feet because they have to wash their spiness away. So symbolically, they're not thinking about that, but symbolically that's what's happening. They're going to join together in a common meal. Joseph has to pull himself down to their level. They have to pull themselves up. And of course that's how God meets with people in the Old Testament. Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies, but God pulls himself down to meet with the people 
and the people are baptized, cleansed, all the cleansing rituals, so that they can come in and dine with God. Now, in the New Covenant, God pulls us all the way into the Holy of Holies with Him. And these barriers are down. But that's not the world in which we live now. We're living in this world. So I think that there's reasons for this. I don't think it's just some accident that we're totally washed his face. It's not necessary in the text. If it was just for psychological reasons, or to show us that there's still estrangement between him and the brothers, he can't show the brothers who he is, he can't show himself to them. Because they, he went inside into a room and wept, and then calmed himself down and came out. But when it tells us he washed his face, you say, well, of course he washed his face, because these guys wore makeup, and he had to clean it up after crying. But it's not just interesting information, you see. I think that in terms of the overall theology of the passage, which we're only getting into here, there's an idea of passing through water to come down into where they are. From above, down into the middle, from below, up into the middle, by washing face on the one hand, washing feet on the other. I think that's in the background here, what we call a deep structure in the text that accounts for the way this is written. And I think it's helpful. I think it shows us what reconciliation involves because all of this has to come down so that everybody can be in the same place and embrace each other. But we're just moving toward that now. We haven't embraced each other yet. Joseph can't cry in front of them and they can't cry in front of him. That's where it's going to go. And if tears are baptismal, and they are, I mean, we looked at that a while back, and we'll look at it again, but I'm sure, but there'll come a point in which they cry on each other, but we're only moving toward that. We've got some water here, some water here. Eventually, we'll get them crying on each other's shoulders, and it'll be merged. So that's the movement in the passage, and that's where we are at this stage of things. Well, we come to a feast. Not the Lord's Supper, but... The Lord's Supper, Joseph is the Lord of these people, and he's going to serve them bread and wine. And at this point, there's still estrangement. The brothers are at one table and the Egyptians at another, and Joseph, as the president of the feast, is at a third table, and food is taken from him to them. At the end of verse 31, it says, serve bread. Now, if you're not looking at Fox, which is okay, it might just say, serve the meal. But the Hebrew word there is bread, lechem, as in Bethlehem, house of bread. And it's quite true that the word bread in Hebrew can be used for food in general. And if we didn't have any reference to wine in this passage, we might leave it at that. And it's also a fact that the brothers have come down to Egypt buying grain, and so the fact that they're served bread from Joseph, who is the guy that is selling them grain, is probably a link. But the main link is that we have both bread and wine here, and that's running through this entire passage, as I'll show you in just a moment. He serves bread. They served him by himself, Joseph, and the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians, and we're told Egyptians will not eat bread with Hebrews, for that's an abomination to Egyptians. And at this point, the commentators Tell us all about Egyptian customs and how fastidious the Egyptians were and how they didn't like to sit down at the same table with other people and especially guys with big hairy beards since the Egyptians were a pretty smooth bunch of people like to shave themselves and all the rest. 
Well, okay, as a matter of historical fact, that's true. But that's not all that the Bible is doing by telling us this. What it's telling us is, Joseph and these Egyptians, they're on one side because they're believers in the true God. They are right with God. Joseph and his Egyptian God-fearers are right with God, and these brothers are not right with God, and that's why they can't be together. The brothers are an abomination because they have this unconfessed sin. It's partly confessed. I mean, there's been a little bit of forgiveness here, but I said to you last week, God forgives us, gets us into his house, and then starts dealing with us, and we find more and more things we need to confess as the years go by at the Lord's table. And so there's still this estrangement here, and it's the brothers who are estranged. They're the ones who are not right with God. And that's why they can't be at the same table. It's the reverse of what we would think, that the Hebrews being right with God would be separated from the pagans who are not right with God. But, of course, everything has been turned upside down here because the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and only now is it going back to Israel. Well, we still have estrangement. We have middle walls of partition here. And now, Joseph introduces more fear into the situation. Verse 33. They were seated in his presence, the firstborn according to his rank, his firstborn, and the youngest according to his rank, his youngest. Now, how did Joseph know this? They don't know it's Joseph. How did this man know this? How did he know that Reuben was the oldest? He knew Benjamin was the youngest. Big deal. But how did he know all the rest? And yet he sits them all up in ranks here, and it says they stared at each other in astonishment over it. Well, The next day, Joseph is going to claim to be a diviner who practices divination and can see secrets. And so he's setting them up for this and rattling them. And again, they don't know what to make out of it, but it is disconcerting. And this theme, I mean, Joseph is lying to them. We've seen that lying is not always wrong. What Jesus did to the men on the road to Emmaus, the two people on the road to Emmaus, he concealed who he was until the right moment. He allowed them to be deceived. And Joseph's doing the same thing in order to save them. And this is part of it. He's putting them in a box and causing them to think all kinds of things so that they're scared. But not too scared. Verse 34 says he had courses taken to them from his presence. Benjamin's course was five times greater than their courses, and they drank and became drunk with him. Well, all right. Being fed from Joseph's table relates to Joseph selling them grain. It indicates his superiority. He's the president of the feast. Also, hence toward reconciliation. If they'll take the bread and wine from Joseph, they can be reconciled. All of this is something that has to happen, but it's prefigured here. But also, Joseph, of course, is putting Benjamin on the spot. Five is the number of power, five times as much food. And this teenager could not possibly eat all this food, but it's taken over there to him anyway. And once again, he is putting all these blessings on Benjamin to see how the brothers will react. They didn't react real well when all the blessings were given to him by his father. This man says, Benjamin, my son, and gives him all these special blessings. How are they going to react? That's the question. So we already know the answer. But if we were reading this the first time, it would be more dramatic, see. And then, of course, it says they drank and became drunk with him. 
that's where we know that there's both bread and wine here, which is going to be important right away in the next verses. But they have to say something about becoming drunk. It doesn't mean they were vomiting under the table. It does mean they drank enough to become relaxed like Noah did. And nothing sinful about that. It's a picture of Sabbath rest and rest with God in the Lord's Supper and also, of course, here, rest with Joseph. They're not fully at rest with Joseph, but we're moving there, see. And the symbolism is here. Well, bread and wine has been a major theme in this whole story. It started with Melchizedek bringing bread and wine out to Abram. But then, of course, we had Joseph in prison with a baker and a cupbearer, bread and wine. And then these things were associated with being priests and wise men. The priests are in charge of bread. The wise men are in charge of wine. And Pharaoh, in his dreams, he saw cows and wheat. He needed a better wise man and a better priest. Joseph comes as a better priest to interpret the dreams. He comes as a better wise man to tell Pharaoh what to do. He serves Pharaoh better bread, better wine, which is what Pharaoh was looking for when he threw his two guys in prison. He was looking for better bread and better wine. He gets them with Joseph. He gets a better priest. He gets a better wise man. The cupbearer is called one of the wise men. Joseph becomes the new baker. He's in charge of all the bread. Joseph becomes the new cupbearer, as this emphasis on the silver cup shows. Now he has served bread and wine to his brothers. And now, in chapter 44, verse 1, he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's packs with food, as much as they are able to carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his pack, and my goblet, the silver goblet, put in the mouth of the youngest pack, along with the silver for his rations. The silver for the rations was brought down there to buy grain. It's grain silver. It's bread silver. And the silver goblet, why are we told it's silver? To make the connection. Silver cup, silver bread. Silver for bread and a silver cup. So we've got bread and wine things going on here. And almost by implication, it's as if these guys are stealing bread and wine again. They're stealing grain and taking the silver along. And they're stealing the wine and cup. By taking it along. Now what does that mean to us? What does it mean if I were to say to you as Christians, don't steal God's bread and wine? I'm not sure exactly all the implications of it, but it seems to me one thing it would mean is that God gives us all these benefits here, and all the benefits of the kingdom are summarized in the fact that we're given Jesus Christ as bread and wine. We're given his life and his death. We're bread and wine. We're given everything there is to be given. We're given the total kingdom here in bread and wine. And that's the same thing these brothers were given. They were circumcised. They were sons of Jacob. They were brought up in the covenant. They were given all the benefits of the covenant. And then they abused it. They stole it. They viewed the covenant as something that belonged to them instead of something that they received from God. And that's the danger, see? God gives us all these things, and then we think, well, we just happen to have them. We don't need to ask God for daily bread and weekly wine or whatever. We have it in ourselves. We steal the things that God gives us and run off with them. And that's what Joseph keeps saying to them. God gave you all these benefits, benefits of being the covenant people, being the priestly people, and you've abused those benefits. It's as if you've stolen the stuff that God has given to you and run off with it 
for your own sake. And so again, in a dramatic parable, this points to their particular kinds of sins. That these blessings that Melchizedek gave to Abraham, Melchizedek, the king, super king, priest, gives bread and wine to Abram, which is a symbol of all the kingdom that God is giving to Abraham. And these guys have taken it for themselves. They're not respecting it as God's kingdom. They're stealing the bread and wine and using it for themselves. So that's part of what's going on here. I think that's what it means that they keep running off with this stuff. They don't intend to do this. They don't intend to do the symbolic thing of stealing the grain silver and the cup silver. But they do intend to run off with the kingdom and do what they want with it. Instead of obeying God and allowing it to be his kingdom. So just as he calls them spies, because that's what they really were, even though they weren't there to spy out the land of Egypt. So he calls them those who are stealing God's kingdom, stealing bread and wine, even though literally that's not what they're doing. Well, the grain silver isn't mentioned again. Everything shifts in its focus to the goblet, to the wine. And I will suggest you something there too. Bread comes before wine. Bread is priestly and wine is kingly. The first time they come to Egypt, they come to get grain and they go home with the grain silver returned. This time they come to get grain and they're also given wine and when they go back, they're stealing the grain silver and the wine cup, which is a more serious sin. Wine advances over grain. When you come out of Egypt, you have bread in the wilderness for 40 years, but you don't have wine until you come into the promised land. The tribute offering in Leviticus 2 consists only of bread for 40 years, but then in Numbers 15 it says when you come into the promised land and you get grapes, those big old grapes that they find there, then you make wine and you add wine to it. So wine is bigger than bread. It comes second. It's climactic. And so things are worse now. This second trip, the first trip was a bread trip. The second trip is a bread and wine trip. And the wine, the goblet, is what's important here. It's a more serious sin to steal that. And that's why nothing is said further about the steward doesn't say, Hey, look, not only did you steal the silver goblet, but your money's back in your sack. You guys stole that. That isn't mentioned. It might have been said. I'm sure that they saw the money was back in their sacks and were scared. But the only thing that attention is called to later on is the goblet because that's the more serious sin. Defiling bread is bad. Defiling bread and wine. Wine is even worse in terms of the symbolism. Well, I think the silver came in little bars and slugs that were standard weights. But I don't recall if they had minted and dyed coins I'm sure it came in lots of different forms. Somebody had bars of silver, it'd be weighed out. If they had coins, they'd probably be weighed out too. Especially if it was coming from a foreign country. Somebody says, these are silver coins. You say, yeah, right. Let's cut one in half and see if it's got nickel on the inside or something. So, all right. Chapter 44, 1 to 5. Now he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's packs with food as much as they are able to carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. And my goblet, the silver goblet, put in the mouth of the youngest's pack, along with the silver for his rations. And he did according to Yosef's word that he had spoken. 
At the light of daybreak, the men were sent off, they and their donkeys. And they were just outside the city. They had not gone far yet. When Yosef said to the steward of his house, Up and pursue the men. And when you have caught up with them, say to them, Why have you paid back evil for good? Is not this goblet the one that my Lord drinks from? And he also divines, yes, divines with it. And you have wrought evil in what you've done. Well, verse 3 is the day of Joseph. It's the day of the Lord. And that's why emphasis is put on the fact that they're leaving at the break of day. doesn't matter what time they left. Who cares? We're not making a movie here. This isn't a novel. There has to be a reason for attention paid to especially the things like the beginning of a new day. And so as the light comes up, light is going to be shed upon their situation. That's what light always has to do with, especially in the book of Genesis. When you lift up your eyes and see something, you discern it. The Lord saw what he had made, and it was good. And light is what is given for that. That's why it's the day of the Lord, or here the day of Joseph, the day of judgment. And so that's when we are. This is now the climax of everything we've read. It's all going to be reconciled on this day. Verses 4 and 5, he gives some instructions to the steward. We find out he's given more instructions later on. The steward tells them what the punishment is going to be, and I'm sure he didn't just make that up on the spot. Joseph also told him that. But here he says, pursue them, catch up with them. Accuse them of stealing the goblet. And what goblet is this? The important cup. Is not this the one my Lord drinks from? Well, yeah it is. And so, when did they steal it? Well, probably at this banquet here. It was probably out here somewhere. It's not credible that the brothers would search the house to find something. But if the goblet was used here, if it was the one Joseph was drinking from then it's credible that one of the brothers might have snatched it and tried to take it home. Of course, that's not what happened. But you see, in terms of the scenario, it's credible. They might have stolen it right then and there. So he says, didn't you know? Isn't this the one my Lord drinks from? Didn't you see him drinking from it right there? Special cup? Maybe, maybe he drank from it on that occasion. And now you want to drink from it too? Well, there's a lot of double meanings there, isn't there? Jesus says, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And the answer is, well, you can't without the Holy Spirit, but you will. You will have to take up your cross and follow him. They want to drink from Joseph's cup. What happened to Joseph? Well, Joseph got sold into slavery. Joseph got sold into slavery to an Egyptian man. Joseph was almost killed. They want to drink from Joseph's cup. And eye frying tooth for tooth, that's what's going to happen to them. And they will drink from it, not in the sense that they might think. Of course, they didn't steal it to start with, but if they had, that would be the meaning. Then he also says, who are you to drink from the same cup that Joseph drinks from? He also says, this is the one that he practices divination with. In other words, what they would think by this is that you put water in this cup and then you drop some oil into it and you watch how the oil moves around on the surface and you can read that. And Joseph, as the cup bearer to the king, does that when he advises the king. Now, since the Bible forbids doing that, we can be pretty sure that Joseph did not in fact do it. But, 
You see, you can have a softer meaning for this word. This is the one that he uses when he advises the king. The cupbearer is one of the chief advisors. There's also this. Joseph is a diviner. He's a prophet. He's one who interprets dreams. We already know this. And so although he doesn't use a cup with water and oil in it, unless God had told him to do so as a special prophetic thing during his lifetime, we don't know that, so let's just say he doesn't actually do it literally. He is a diviner, and he is one who interprets dreams. And he interprets dreams and divines the future. He did that with the baker and the cupbearer, and he did it with Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh's cupbearer, because he's the new cupbearer, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he divines the future, and he knows things other people don't know, and sees things other people don't see. And that's really true. And they know it, because Joseph had ranked them all according to order at the feast. And so this claim has a great deal of credibility, but that's not the end of it. That's not the whole reason we're being told this. Joseph foretells the future with this, or the Egyptian man does. And he drinks from it, and it's silver. But one of you guys stole it? One of you guys trying to set himself up as a prophet? One of you guys think you can steal this cup, and you can become a diviner? And you can know things others don't know? And you can know the future, and you can have special dreams. Of course, that's what's happening. Because it looks like Benjamin stole it. So it looks like Benjamin's trying to be like Joseph. Joseph was the one who had special dreams. Joseph was the one who could practice divination. His brothers hated him for it, and they tried to kill him. Now he's going to set it up. Or Benjamin, looks like Benjamin's trying to be the same kind of person. Benjamin wants to have prophetic dreams. Benjamin wants to practice divination. Benjamin wants to have everything better. He's already gotten all this extra food, and he's gotten all this special privilege, and his daddy loves him more than he does the rest of them anyway, and they know that. Now, looks like he wants to set himself up like Joseph and be a diviner, because he's the one who stole the cup. So that's the center of the setup here. We make Benjamin look really bad, and then we see what the brothers do. We make Benjamin into a carbon copy of Joseph, son of Rachel. Brother of Joseph, favorite of his father. His name means son of the right hand, which means, just as Jesus sits at the father's right hand, it means number one son, ruler. And not only that, but now he's been given all this special stuff, special honors. And now he wants to be like Joseph and be a diviner and a prophet and rule over his brothers. That's the setup. So what are the brothers going to do? Well, let's read the springing of the trap. I've anticipated this, but now we can read it over in verses 6 to 13. When he, the stewards, caught up with them, he spoke those words to them. They're not recounted for us. They're the same words Joseph had said, plus more doubtless. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Heaven forbid. Well, actually, it should say heaven forfend, shouldn't it? Although neither one of them is correct. For your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the silver that we found in the mouth of our packs, we return to you from the land of Canaan. So how could we steal silver or gold from the house of your Lord? He with whom it is found among your servants, he shall die. And we also will become my Lord's servants, servants of the steward. And he said, Now as well, according to your words, so be it. He with whom it is found shall become my servant, but you shall be clear. Ah, oh, you can get off the hook. 
you just find one to blame, the rest of you can go home. Setting them up. And since it's going to be Benjamin who's at fault, and we hate him anyway because he's just like Joseph, uh, well, he'll become a slave and the rest of us can go home. So he's making it easy for him. I mean, it's going to be a real clear-cut decision. With haste, each man let down his pack to the ground. Each man opened his pack. And then he searched. With the eldest he started and the youngest he finished. My goodness, now the steward knows the order in which these men were born. Or maybe he remembers it from the meal the previous day. And the goblet was found in Benjamin's pack. And they tore their clothes. Each man loaded up his donkey and they returned to the city. That's a good sign that they tore their clothes. Verses 6 and 7. This last phrase in verse 7, heaven forbid or heaven forfend that your servants do such a thing, literally says something like this. May we be considered blasphemers if we've done such a thing. It's an oath or a curse. It's kind of like, may I be ripped in half and devoured by the birds if I did such a thing. That you find so often in the Bible. May the Lord do so to me and more also. You tear your clothes and say, may the Lord tear me and more also. Feed me to the birds and the animals like Ahab and Jezebel. If I've done such a thing. Well, this is not the same phrase, but what it implies is may we be considered those who commit sacrilege. May we be considered blasphemers if we do such a thing. Well, the punishment for that is serious. It's a serious thing to attack God. And may we be considered like those who attack God if we've done such a thing. So this is pretty serious and means basically if we're guilty, we will come under the serious punishments that the Bible in the Old Testament gives for blasphemy. You know that if you tried to bust into the holy place here and you were not a priest, the Levites would kill you. Now, if you tried to get up on the altar out here in the outer court and you weren't a priest, you weren't allowed to touch the altar. And if you did, the Levites were stationed around there with weapons. They'd kill you. Anybody who touched the mountain at Mount Sinai was to be shot through with Uzis, since they were Israelis. And this is a real serious thing in the Old Testament. These things that God says are holy, if you mess with them and you're not supposed to, punishment is usually death. And so this is serious language here, and that's why I want to expose to you. They don't just say, oh, heaven forbid. It's quite an oath formula, putting themselves under a curse. Whoever did this deserves to die. He with whom is found among your servants, he shall die. We will become my Lord's servants. Well, let's look at this, because there are parallels here. Does he deserve to die? I mean, our, our initial statement would be, well, no. The Bible does not give a death penalty for stealing somebody's stuff. You make double restitution. That's what they did before. They brought back twice as much silver, plus extra silver to buy new stuff on their second trip. So how is it appropriate that he die if he's stolen this? Well, it's not appropriate at a literal level. And that's why the steward modifies it. He says, look, whoever stole this will become my servant and the rest of you go free. But because this story is operating at this symbolic and psychological level where everything that's happening here relates to what these guys did years ago to Joseph, psychologically and symbolically, this is actually correct. And the reason for it, got it here in your notes, the cup is associated with prophecy and rule, and it is Joseph's cup, therefore it's a symbol of Joseph. 
To steal this cup is to steal Joseph. Now, they had stolen Joseph years ago, and now they must die because death is the penalty for stealing a man. Exodus 21.16 You steal a man, you're put to death. And the Bible does not allow slavery the way it's usually practiced. And if a slave caravan comes by and you see a bunch of pitiful slaves out there, then certainly you should buy them, take them home, and help them out, and teach them, and educate them, and let them earn their freedom. But you can't go out and steal them. You can't go out and fall on a bunch of people and reduce them to slavery. That's a capital offense. And that's what they did. They do deserve to die. They sold Joseph into slavery. And that is a capital crime. I know the law hasn't been given yet, but the principles are there. And instinctively, they would know that, and so they're right. Whoever stole Joseph deserves to die. Oh yeah, literally, if they're only stealing a cup, you don't deserve to die for that. But what the cup symbolizes is stealing Joseph. And the rest will become slaves. And they say, we'll all become slaves. Well, there's something interesting there too. It doesn't mean they're going to become slaves of Joseph, the man. They're going to be some slaves of the stewards. You can see this in verses 8 and 9. How could we steal silver or gold from the house of your Lord? Your Lord refers to Joseph, the Egyptian overseer. He with whom it is found among your servants, he shall die. We shall become my Lord's servants, my Lord. They are referred to the steward. They are offering to become slaves of the steward. Well, what is the curse of Canaan? The curse of Canaan is a slave of slaves will he be. Not just a slave of anybody, but a slave of other slaves. And right here in this context, it refers to the land of Canaan in verse 8. They have behaved like Canaanites. And remember, these brothers murdered all those men in Shechem. And they sold Joseph into slavery. They have behaved like Canaanites. And now they receive the punishment of Canaanites which is to become a slave of other slaves, the lowest kind of slave, the worst possible position. So all of this is quite correct in a sense. They don't realize it. They're exaggerating. If it was a novel, we would see these guys as just exaggerating, saying, oh, yeah, you know, we all deserve to die, blah, 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 and they don't really mean it. But this is theology. It's a theological text. And they're actually quite correct at the deep level what they did was steal Joseph. They deserved to die. They deserved to be treated like Canaanites and become slaves of slaves. Because what did Ham do? Ham rebelled against his father and stole his father's robe. These guys rebelled against their father. They attacked Joseph and stole Joseph's robe. Rebelled against the father, stole Joseph's robe. They did the same kind of thing Ham did. So they get the same kind of curse that was put on Ham through Canaan. Well, the steward modifies things, and I think Joseph's instructions must be behind this, but he modifies it strictly down to an eye-for-eye thing, and I've got it here. Joseph is the cup. Joseph was sold in slavery to an Egyptian. Now the one who stole the cup must go into slavery to an Egyptian, the steward, and those who sold Joseph must go into slavery to an Egyptian. These things are all parallel, and we've just covered it. You can reflect on it again later. But this sets us up for a direct threat against Benjamin. They're going to find out it's Benjamin, and what are they going to do about it? Verses 11 and 12, the steward seems to have mysterious knowledge of the birth order of the men. This is another oddity. 
that's going to make them think. And then the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, and that's the climax. We have a search that goes on for about 20 or 30 minutes here, sack by sack, and it leads up to Benjamin. And it shows that Benjamin's trying to set himself up as a prophet like Joseph. That's what they think. And so now that Benjamin has been fully positioned as a new Joseph, what will the brothers do? They say, okay, good. Take this boy back into slavery and let the rest of us go home. Well, that's not what they do. So this is where we start to get some positive stuff. They tear their garments. If we go back to chapter 37, which I've got in your notes, you can do it. They ruin Joseph's garments by soaking them up with blood. And so eye for eye, now their garments are ruined. But also in chapter 37, Jacob tore his garments when he heard what happened to Joseph. They didn't tear theirs, or Reuben did, but the rest of them didn't tear their garments. Now they all tear their garments when they hear what's going to happen to Benjamin, which is a good sign. Now they're acting like Jacob. They're acting like their righteous father. They're indicating a change of heart. And so we'll come back to this next week and look at Judah's speech, which is now really the heart of the whole story, where Judah offers to die for Benjamin. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.